Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Valley Beit Midrash would like to thank the Center for Jewish Studies at Arizona State University for their support in bringing Professor Shaul Magid to our community. For more information, please visit jewishstudies.asu.edu. Please enjoy the program. tonight uh, by kind of asking a question and it may seem like somewhat of an obvious question or not an obvious question but a, uh, but a question about what seems to be an obvious phenomenon which are sometimes the more interesting questions to ask and that the question is is why is it that if you go to almost any progressive synagogue in the United States by progressive I mean non-orthodox synagogue in the United States doesn't make it a conservative reform, reconstructionist, renewal, anything. That you're more, and you, and you go to an adult ed education program, or you go hear the rabbi give a sermon. You're more likely to hear about figures like Nachman of Bratislav, or the Baal Shem Tov, or Hasidism, than you are to hear about Leopold Suns, Henrich Gratz, Abraham Geiger, Right? Maybe some of you don't even know who those people are. Kaufman Kohler. I can go on, a list of names. Right? And, the reason, and the reason why that's strange is that the Judaism that, that upon which these synagogues and these communities were founded were the teachings of precisely those people whom you no longer even know, who's, you no longer know. And the names that you know, Nachman of Bratislav and the Baal Shem Tov and so on and so forth, are people in a way that would find this synagogue or any non-Orthodox synagogue in America quite strange. And they would see themselves as being somewhat interlopers into a religious world that they not only would they not support, they wouldn't even really understand. So how did that happen? Right? What happened that that somehow Hasidism has become the template for progressive contemporary American Judaism. And not only America, Israel too, but Israel, of course, is a different situation, a different society, a different culture. So that's the question I want to ask. And it's, 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 it is in some way a kind of classical historical question. That is, why do some groups win over others, right? Why did the Pharisees win? Why did the Zionists win? Why did Hasidism win, right? I mean, these were, these, were org, these were groups in their time, in their origins, who were very much a minority, part of a much more vibrant culture. In fact, you know, one could say, we don't know historically how true, but that the Pharisees that then became the rabbinic sages, that then became the Talmudic tradition, that then became Judaism, were 
quite a minority within the larger ancient Israelite society of their time. Zionists, Zionists surely were a minority until very recently in history. Surely in the early days of Zionists, most European Jews weren't Zionists. Most American Jews weren't Zionists until the middle of the 20th century. With Hasidism, I, I, you can ask the same question. Um, over, over dinner, um, the rabbi and I were talking about um, contemporary Jews that are writing contemporary constructive theology. Who are the Jews that are writing contemporary constructive theology today? And we talked about a few names of people that were doing that kind of work. And what I, what I said to him was, it's interesting that almost all of the people that are doing constructive theology today in America are writing from the resources of Hasidism and Kabbalah. Whereas if you looked at some of the people who are doing constructive theology 50 years ago in America, almost none of them were. I mean, I could name names, Michael Wishagrad, Eugene Barowitz, Neil Gilman. I mean, they were people who were part of the rabbinical seminaries. There were people that were writing about Jewish ethics. Elliot Dorff, for example. I mean, he's still writing, but he, was, he started his career then. So there's been some kind of shift in the kind of collective Jewish mind from writing from a more rational, a rationalist tradition to writing from a Kabbalistic and Hasidic tradition. And so what I want to kind of explore with you is why that happened, what that really means um, for Judaism today and perhaps for, for, um, for Judaism in the future. Because there is, there is some kind of incongruity. As I said, we don't live Hasidic lives. We don't agree with the worldview of those that continue to carry on the tradition of Hasidism. Those are, those are the Jews that we're not. Right? We have, may have contact with them through Chabad or maybe not, but we're other than them. And yet, somehow, we have imbibed through a, through a process of translation, and I want to talk about that process of translation, through a number of Jewish figures who have been translators of Hasidism into a modern and postmodern and contemporary idiom that has, in a sense, transformed the way we as progressive Jews think about our Judaism, what we want from it, what it teaches us, and how we want to pass that on to, um, to the next generation. So I want to really make four points, and then I, I want to look at a couple of texts with you of four of those important translators, Martin Buber being one of them, and probably the most famous and the most well-known, Abraham Joshua Heschel being another one, Arthur Green, contemporary Jewish theologian being a third, and Zalman Shakti Shalomi, being the fourth. And I think each one of them is actually quite different. And we've, drawn, we've taken from all four of them, and they've also obviously taken from each other in this process of, I would say, kind of devotional translation of an ultra-conservative, very enclavist, um, enclosed, xenophobic, parochial worldview, and created from it contemporary progressive Judaism. So the first, the four points I want to make, and I think these are four, these are four things that we have, we, that have come upon us in the last 75 years in America that have brought us from that place of the more historical, rational tradition that created this synagogue and all of these synagogues, right? The names that I mentioned before, Greats and Geiger and Kohler 
and, and, and Isaac Mayer Wise and Stephen Wise and Ellie Hirsch, all of those people we don't even know anymore. Nobody knows them, right? You go into a library of a synagogue, maybe there are some of their books on shelves in the back that no, no one's opened for 30 years, right? How that really took place. The first, I think the first stage of this transition happened probably a little bit before most of our time, and that is a kind of move in America towards um, thinking about things in an existential way. The philosophy of existentialism, and it doesn't have to be the classical kind of scholarly philosophy of existentialism, but the way in which after the Second World War in the 1950s existent and the 1960s, existentialism suddenly became an important way in which Americans began to think of themselves and the way American Jews subsequently began to think, think about their Judaism. And that has, you know, in a certain way, it's taken on many different forms. Psychology, the importance of psychology, the importance of the, of the, of, of the whole practice of therapy that exists in our society. And we, we are a kind of psychologized civilization. What role does the therapist play, for example, in our society? The therapist plays in some way a role that's not so dissimilar from the way a Hasidic Rebbe played in a previous situation. A person that you go to that has the wisdom and the training to be able to engage in counseling, to be able to kind of bring some kind of clarity and so on and so forth. Now, whether we like that or not, I think, I think we, are a, we are a therapized culture, maybe over-therapized culture. But, so there is this focus on the self that existentialism kind of brought to, the, brought, brought to the surface at a particular time. The focus on the self, not in, replace, in, in replacing the collective, but as a kind of centerpiece of how we build our lives how we build our lives collectively, as communities, as families, and so and in terms of friendship as well. So the notion of what people call the search for meaning. Now, what it, this, happens, it, this happens at the same time that religion, traditional religion, starts to wane for Jews in the 1950s. Now, there's a kind of interesting moment because in some way, you know, Eisenhower talked about the spiritual revolution, right? His famous line, I don't care what real, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care what you believe as long as you believe in something or something like that, something similar to that. There was a kind of the spiritual renaissance he was talking about in the 1950s, and the Jews were playing an important role in that. But so what you saw in American Jewry in the 1950s was something very interesting. The proliferation of synagogues, the rise of conservative Judaism at the same time that you have the decline of Jewish practice and Jewish belief. Those two things seem to be opposite, but they were actually happening at the same time. So the infrastructure of American Judaism institutionally was being built at the same time that Jews were becoming less and less practically religious. So that in a certain sense, religion became much more about a search for meaning, whereas the synagogue became a place of affiliation. I was an, I'm, an, I'm a good Jew because I pay my dues to the synagogue. Even if I don't go there, it doesn't matter if I go there. That has nothing to do with my sta standing as a member of the synagogue. Right? I pay my dues, I'm a good Jew. This is the beginning of what was captured in Christian 
theologian named Robert Fuller in a book that he publishes in the 1970s called Spiritual But Not Religious, The Phenomenon of Spiritual But Not Religious. Right? Now, I'm sure all of you have heard that, and Fuller coined that term. Arthur Green later kind of adopted that term to Judaism. That seems to be the direction that American Jewry has gone. And the spiritual but not religious means that my own spiritual life is not tied to my institutional religious life. I can practice privately with family outside of my affiliation to a synagogue. And I don't want the synagogue to fulfill those needs necessarily. Now what you happen what happens a little bit later is you have the you have the kind of introduction of of yoga in synagogues, of medita Jewish meditation, right? In a certain sense the synagogue began to open its doors to the spiritual, right? That was practiced by Jews outside the synagogue. So now you have many synagogues in the country, again, orthodox reform, conservative reconstructions that have yoga, that have meditation, that have Tai Chi, right? All of those kinds of things, because the yoga, meditation, Tai Chi were just three forms of spirituality that Jews began to absorb beginning in the 1970s. Now, how does that happen in the 1970s? That's the second point. So the first point is the kind of existentialism in the 1950s. The second point is the introduction of New Age religion in the beginning of the 1970s. Right. And that's a very important kind of moment that's overlooked, I think, when people think about the history of American Judaism. I, in fact, I've never seen a study of American Judaism that has actually seriously engaged the impact of New Age religion on American Jews and American Judaism. But it was transformative. Right? Not in the 1960s. In the 1960s, it was about radical politics. Once the radicalism ended with the Vietnam War, and Nixon's resignation. And that was really the end, 73 and 74. You began to see the emergence of the New Age. The Whole Earth Catalog, that actually happens before, it happens in the 1960s, the Whole Earth Catalog, followed in the 1972 with the publication of the Jewish Catalog, the three volumes of the Jewish Catalog from 1972 to 1980. Now, our children don't know what that is, but I know when, when I was coming of age, and maybe some of you as well, you walked into many Jewish homes, and the Jewish Catalog was on the shelf. It was just ubiquitous. It was, it, was, it, was, it was just there, right? It was like Peter Frampton's record, right? What, is, what, what was New Age, what was the Jewish catalog? What was the subtitle of the, the first Jewish catalog? Do-it-yourself Judaism, right? Can't get, any, can't get any more obvious than that. Do-it-yourself Judaism. How can I basically be a Jew outside of the institutions? whether it be the synagogue or the federations or the JCCs. So if you looked at the Jewish calendar, which is a fabulous document. I mean, if you get a chance, you can buy it on, you can buy it on, on eBay or on Amazon for very cheap. If you, read it, if you read it as a historical document, I mean, many of us read it because that was, for me, that was how I kind of came into my Jewishness. But if you read it as a historical document, it's a fabulous document about what it says, teaching people how to tie tzitzit, teaching you how to make a sukkah, Right? It was a do-it-yourself Judaism. It was taking Judaism away from the rabbi, away from the community societies. Now, I'll, I'll I think this is just a precursor to how Hasidism then fits into that. And it was also very much a romanticization of old world Judaism. 
So you'll see, like in the first Jewish catalog in the back, when they talk about Israel, they'll give you addresses of Hasidic rebbe's in Jerusalem that you can go and visit, and Hasidic synagogues. And when you go to Lower East Side, these are the these are the kosher restaurants. And the in other words, it was basically a kind of you know guide to the the Jewish galaxy, and it functioned that way. And people, you know, you remember that? What was that like? Uh, Europe on five dollars a day. We all remember that. That was kind of what the Jewish catalogs was for the, for, for the young Jew in that period of time. So you have um, the, the deformalization of religion, of Judaism, into a kind of informal, do-it-yourself spirituality. Number three, so that's, you have existentialism, you have new age. New age. Number three is something that, um, that, that I'm calling internal Judaism. And it's not really a term that I've seen anywhere else. But it's basically the way in which progressive Jews have abandoned the obligatory nature of Jewish practice. It's not that, non it's not that progressive Jews don't want, to, don't want to engage in Jewish practice. Many do, in all kinds of ways. But not from the perspective of obligation. We don't feel commanded. We might feel moved. We might feel invested, we might feel interested, but we don't feel commanded. Now, once you don't feel commanded, once you no longer, feel, once you no longer feel commanded, then the practice that you engage in becomes much more an outgrowth of choice. And I think here you move from what we would call halachic Judaism to post-halachic Judaism, because. Post-Halachic Judaism is not the same as, let's say, classical Reform Judaism. Well, is this a conservative synagogue or Reform synagogue? Conservative synagogue. So it's not a classical Reform. It's not a classical uh, Reform Judaism, which is basically saying Halacha doesn't really play much of a role at all. Judaism is about ethical monotheism. Judaism is about social ethic, social action. Judaism is about tikkun olam. It's basically saying that no devotional practice is important. It's important for the individual. But my, social, but my devotional practice is going to be constructed by what I find meaningful and not what I feel obligated to do. That's what I mean by the internalization of devotion. To some, reason, to some extent, that comes from Mordechai Kaplan and Reconstructionism. He's talking about Jewish law and folkways, but it becomes spiritualized. Kaplan was looking at Jewish ritual as a form of community building. I don't think that's what's happening in, in the internalized Judaism. I think that Jewish ritual becomes a form of religious practice. So it becomes a kind of yoga, in a way. Right? And I think that it's articulated in that way by some people at that time. Now, is this the 80s? This is, I think this is also the 70s and the 80s. I think from the 70s kind of moving into the 80s. And then I think the fourth thing is that increasingly, and this is moving into the 21st century, so it's not as relevant maybe for us as it is for our children and grandchildren. I could say, because I have a grandchild now, so I like to actually say children and grandchildren. I wasn't able to say that before. Anyway, um, <laughs> again, now I, now I feel old. I think Jews in America toward the end of the century felt like, by say Jews, I don't mean obviously all Jews, but enough Jews to actually think about it in terms of a, of a trend, were looking for something that was not Israel and the Holocaust, for their Jewish identity. Right. 
Now, obviously, Israel and the Holocaust plays a tremendously important role for Jews in the second half of the 20th century. As I was saying, as, 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 as the rabbi and I were talking about in the car, I mean, we, it, it's kind of strange we're living in this world where in some way there's a kind of Jewish renaissance in America. There's all these things. I mean, look at this, look at this kind of you know, adult education program. And yet, we don't realize the extent to which we are still living very much inside the trauma of the Holocaust, that we are a traumatized people. And I think that one of the things that we were talking in the afternoon about the kind of generation gap between kind of, you know, great generation and baby boomers and then millennials, I think one of the, one of the things that, 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 gener that splits us as a, as a generation from the baby boomers and millennials is that it's very hard for many of us to absorb the reality that the millennials do not feel as traumatized as we do, as Jews. Their Jewishness is so natural to them that, and, and in a sense, not, not only so natural, it's so natural that they don't really necessarily have to express it. They don't feel the anxiety that we felt. They don't, they don't have the experience of seeing people with tattooed numbers on their arms. They don't have the experience of either experiencing the founding of Israel in 1948 or experiencing the trauma of 1967 or 1973, the Six-Day War. They don't have that experience. And I think that they are a generation that's beginning to come out of that traumatic period. And I think you know, historians of, Jew, of, of American Jewry, 100 years from now, will look back at this time, at this decade, and see that this is the beginning of a break, of a, trauma, of a lifting of a particular kind of trauma. And I think that we, we're, I think we as, a, as, a, as a generation, and we're, we're from a couple, of, a couple of generations, I think we feel very, we feel almost doubly traumatized. We're traumatized by what happened, and then we're traumatized that our children don't feel traumatized. Right? Right? We don't know what to make of it. And there's really kind of no way out of that. That's, that, that is the reality. So I think, I think that, that um, when we move into the 90s and then 2000s, I think that Jews began to slowly come out of that that, that trauma, and also face the complex reality of Israel, whatever people think of it, and we had plenty to talk about this afternoon, but it's a complicated place. It's sure much more complicated than it was before 1967 for American Jews. To think of how, we, how Jews can express their Jewishness outside of that. And I want to add one final thing. Um, the way in which multiculturalism has had an impact on us, such that now diversity and difference, rather than melting pot assimilationism, is really not only what interests Jews, but it's what interests Americans. So we can, we can finally be different again without being singled out, without being feeling marginalized. That in the notion, multiculturalism, I think, again, 100 years from now, I think historians will look back and they'll say, multiculturalism saved orthodoxy in America. You know, in the 1950s, people were writing the obituary for orthodoxy in America. Right? Nobody, thought Amer no, no, nobody thought that orthodoxy was going to survive in the late 50s, early 60s. It was just a matter of time. It was like, it was the end, right? And multiculturalism came, and orthodoxy swung back 
So I think that the, 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 great, the great two best beneficiaries of, of multiculturalism, and I don't know if these two organizations or groups feel this, but I think that what saved these two groups was multiculturalism. It's modern orthodoxy and Chabad. Chabad would not exist the way it does today without multiculturalism. It would not have the space. It wouldn't have the support that it has. And I think that's why, and this is kind of an aside, although it kind of it, it, it goes into what I want to talk about Hasidism, I think one of the great visionaries, I think, I think one of the two, the two great, to my mind, the two great Jewish visionaries of the 20th century were Mordechai Kaplan and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I think, as much as I might not agree with him on many, many things, I think Kaplan in the 30s, when he wrote Judaism as a Civilization, and Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 50s and 60s understood the Jewish future. They, they saw what was happening. And I think that, that, that Kaplan and Lubavitcher Rebbe saw the way in which American society was going and were able to kind of put forward, I mean, I don't think either of them would feel comfortable being paired with the other, right? But nonetheless, I think they actually were incredibly visionary in their thinking, more than I think almost anyone else. I mean, there are a couple of other figures I could mention, but I think those, those two figures, for me, uh, are, are the most kind of prominent. So how does Hasidism fit into all this? Well, in a certain way, Hasidism was the perfect, was the perfect medicine, the perfect anecdote. Why? Because it was a ritually-based religion, religious ide ideology. It was existentially sensitive. It was interested in the person. It was interested in experience. It was interested in difference, in separation. It was easily translated into the New Age. Right? And this doesn't start, by the way, this doesn't start in America. It really starts in the, in the teens and the, and the aughts of the 20th century with Martin Buber. Martin Buber's first works were translations of Hasidism. The stories of Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, stories of the Baal Shem Tov. Who was he translating them for? He's writing, he's translating them from Hebrew to German. He wasn't translating them for Jews. There, wasn't a, there, were, there weren't Jewish communities that were interested in Hasidism in the early part of the 20th century. He was translating them for Germans who were interested in Eastern religion. In the aughts and teens of the 20th century, in Weimar, Germany, there was a kind of proliferation of Orientalism, translating Sanskrit texts from either Pali or Hindi, or Sanskrit or Hindi texts into German. There was a kind of, it was a, it was a classic Orientalism, looking to the East, looking away from the technological West. Right? And Buber comes along and says to his, to his non-Jewish friends, you don't have to go to Germany. You just have to take a train to Poland, right? There are Jewish Orientals. I mean, that's the language that they used. Obviously, it's not a language we use anymore, right? There were Jewish Orientals, the Ausjuden, who were living in Warsaw and Krakow. You don't have to go to, you don't have to, go to De Delhi to find the true, authentic, spiritual self that these people were looking for. And so he translated these, these Hasidic texts into German for his non-Jewish audience. But what ends up happening 50, 60, 70 years later in America when does Buber's work start to become translated into English? In the late 1950s and early 1960s. Because he began to have an audience 
of the counterculture. Not only Jews, right? In fact, the first English translation of Buber's I and Thou was actually done by a Christian. And it was more widely read by Christians than it was by Jews. Then there was a second translation, actually, that was done by a Jew. But the first translation was actually done by a Christian. So in a way, Buber really is the catalyst. He is the person, he is really the person who brings Hasidism from its kind of embedded enclave in Poland and the Austro-Hungarian Empire into a German and then an English-speaking audience. From there, you have a transition. Buber, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who actually comes from a, from a Hasidic background, but then leaves Poland and goes to Vilna and then goes to Berlin and studies modern Judaism, who actually replaced Buber in Frankfurt when Buber immigrated to Palestine in 1935. Right? So Buber was Heschel's teacher in a way although Heschel claims that he taught Buber modern Hebrew. Because, because one of the conditions of coming to the Hebrew University, one of the conditions is that Buber was supposed to give these inaugural lectures and he had to give them in Hebrew. And Buber knew Hebrew, but he had never really spoken. He didn't know the spoken language. So apparently Heschel gave him modern Hebrew lessons uh, while they were still in Frankfurt. Anyway, it's a side, side point. Um, and then from there you have Arthur Green, who was a student of Abraham Joshua Heschel, Right, so there's a whole shalshalit, right? There's a whole tradition here. And then you have Zalman Shakta Shalomi, who's an interesting case, right? Who comes, is raised in a Hasidic family in Vienna, comes to America, joins the Lubavitch movement after the war, and then leaves the Lubavitch movement and becomes a kind of um, spiritual architect of New Age Judaism. Right? that he calls the fourth turning of Hasidism. Now, what does he mean by the fourth turning of Hasidism? He said there are, there are, there are three periods of Hasidism. There's the period of what he calls the, the Hasidim of the Talmudic sages. I mean, the Talmudic sages talk about these Hasidim. It's not clear that they were really a group of people, but they were these kind of pious people. And then you have the Hasidim of medieval Germany, of, of the Rhineland, the, the pietist, the German pietist, very kind of austere, ascetic pietist. Then you have the Hasidism of the Baal Shem Tov, and he claimed he was inaugurating the fourth era of Hasidism, which was the Hasidism of the New Age, that translation. I think that, that trajectory through those four figures gives us a translation of Hasidic spirituality that is in some way unrecognizable to the Hasidim who live in Borough Park and Williamsburg. I mean, their Hasidism is a much more, uh, is a Hasidism that's much more tied to an old world religiosity that in some way is conservative and somewhat of a reaction against the much more wild and free-flowing Hasidic piety that may have existed in Hasidism's early days in the 18th century. And so in some way you kind of have a spirit-law dichotomy maybe, that the, that the neo-Hasidism of the people that we're talking about may have caught the spirit of Hasidism, whereas the traditional Hasidim may be holding down the law of Hasidism, right? That, Law spirit thing is kind of what Paul does with Judaism and Christianity, but it's kind of an interesting kind of it's an interesting heuristic tool to use in this regard as well. 
So what I want to do is I want to now, I want to look at a couple of types. You have to pardon me, there's a, there's a bunch of typos here. I'm sorry I, I sent the actual penultimate copy of this to you, but we'll, we'll, we'll get beyond the typos. So first, starting with Martin Buber, uh, or, or even, or even the, 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 just the kind of the, ep, the, the epigraph at the beginning, where Shakta Shalomi writes in a book called Wrapped in a Holy Flame, I don't want to talk about Hasidism as a static thing. Hasidism is an approach. It is an approach to Judaism. Right? So he wants to take it out of its kind of institutional formal framework and say, no, this is a way, Hasidism is a way of being Jewish. It's not tied to any particular thing. So Martin Buber starts as follows. This is not the place to present the teachings of Hasidism. They can be summed up in a single sentence. Anytime somebody says, anytime somebody says that. Anyway, but, but let's just let's give him the benefit of the doubt. right? Same thing when somebody says, I just want the facts. When somebody says that, my mind just turns off. Anyway. This is not the place to present the teaching of Hasidism. They can be summed up in a single sentence. God can be held in each thing and reached through each pure deed. That's it. God can be held, be held in each thing and reached through each pure deed. And what Buber is suggesting is the proximity of the divine. He says that's the core of Hasidism. That God is not far away, that God is not distant, God is not some kind of radically transcendent, ineffable reality. God is actually reachable at every moment. Now, people say, what does that mean that everything is God? Does that mean there's pantheism? Well, in some, in some sense, it kind of does, but not exactly. I think that what Buber is trying to suggest, and I think you can, you can see that how the existentialism and the New Age spirituality and the internal Judaism models that I spoke of would really be quite open to this idea that God is proximate. The experience of God is possible, and it's proximate, and it doesn't only happen through halacha. It's not that I can only experience God when I do a mitzvah. I can experience God everywhere and in any deed at any time. When I'm picking my kids up from school, when I'm hiking in the woods, although here it's not so woods, so it's a desert, when I'm hiking in the desert, whatever I'm in nature, whatever I'm doing, God is close and God is accessible. That, he claims, that is the core of Hasidism. But this insight is by no means to be equated with a pantheistic worldview, as some have thought. In the Hasidic teaching, the whole world is only a word out of the mouth of God. Now, it's interesting because Heschel says almost the same thing. Heschel borrows a lot of things from Buber, kind of twists phrases a little bit. Nonetheless, the least thing in the world is worthy that through it God should reveal himself to the man who truly seeks him. Now, obviously, the gendered language is a product of his time. For no thing can exist without a divine spark, and each person can uncover and redeem the spark at each time and through each action, even among the most ordinary, if he performs it in purity, wholly directed to God and concerning him. So I think you kind of, just from this paragraph, you get a sense of what Buber's trying to do. He's trying to strip away the externalities of Hasidism, whether it be the practical externalities or even the ideological ones, to say that Hasidism offers the Jew a kind of, in some way, just again, to use an anachronistic term, an Orientalist spirituality. The experience of God. 
Now, when people really think about Judaism, when we, I know when I grew up in Hebrew school in the 1960s and the 1970s, right, I don't think anybody ever talked about the experience of God. Right? Nobody talked about that. We didn't learn about that. Right? We learned about the holidays, we learned about the Holocaust, and we learned about Israel. That was it. Right? And I think that many of the people like myself who took the first exit off that Hebrew school highway, right? because none of those things really interested in us, because we were looking for something else. We were looking for experience. Right? We, were, we were reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Right? We wanted that moment of encounter. And Buber is saying, no, 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 it's, right, it's back there. They just didn't tell you. So that's, that's in a way part of how Buber kind of translates, um, I've translated this. One more little piece in the next paragraph. The, simple, the, the, the central example of the Hasidic overcoming of the distance between the sacred and the profane, because that, that overcoming is very important, right? In a certain way, Judaism is, it presents us with a kind of bifurcated reality. Halakha is iser veheter. What's, you know, that's, that's even the way sometimes halakha is described as iser veheter, right? The, permiss, the permitted and the forbidden, right? That it's a, it's a binary system. You can do this, you can't do this. There's the Jew and there's the non-Jew. There's the kosher and then there's the non-kosher. There's the pure and there's the... Now, it's obviously much more complicated than that. But it is a kind of binary worldview. All the way down from how we see ourselves in the world, there are two things. There's God and there's idolatry. That's it. So from the theological to the practical to the cultural to notions of, to the societal, Judaism very often presents us with this notion of a binary. And what, 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 what Buber claims Hasidism is doing is overcoming that binary. It's overcoming the binary between the sacred and the profane. Right? We even say it in the Havdalah service, right? We thank God for separating between the holy and the unholy, between Israel and the nations, between Shabbat and the rest of the week. Right? We enter into the week after Shabbat by, in a sense, washing ourselves over with the binary. And what Buber is saying is that Hasidism undoes that, radically undoes that. And by the fact that Hasidism had its word to speak in the crisis of Western man. Now, when he talks about the crisis of Western man, he's really talking about the, teen, the, 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 the teens of the 20th century. He's really talking about the crisis of Western man that gave birth to things like the philosophy of Heidegger and anti-technology, right? The way in which people in the wire period, by the way, I saw, a, a, as a good example, it's a little bit, a little bit post that, but I, I, I binge watched on the plane over here from New York, five episodes of this TV series called Genius, which is on the life of Albert Einstein. Mm -hmm. And it's fairly fascinating on a lot of levels. It's fascinating in the way they're able to kind of integrate science to somebody who's not you know, trained in science, but also it gives you a sense of what Germany was like in the 20s, in the teens, in the 20s, in the early 30s. But you know, I, I, only, I got to the point where he's still actually in Berlin. But the notion of the crisis of modern man, you can really sense it even in what, you, can, you even sense it in the way that Einstein was trying to undo, right? Because again, I'm, I'm speaking completely you know, ignorant of the science, but the notion that Einstein's revolution was trying to show the way all, that all of existence is connected. Right? And that was part of what his theory of relativity on a very basic level was trying to show the interconnectedness of everything. Right? And he saw that as a kind of response to this, this crisis, as Nazism was beginning to emerge. So Buber was, was in Germany at the same time that Einstein was. 
in the 20s, and then he left in the 30s. I mean, I think Einstein left in 33. Buber, I think, left a couple of years later. And he talks about the crisis was already recognized by Kierkegaard. That really doesn't matter. But it is only in our generation that we have seriously begun to occupy ourselves with the fact that in the, this crisis, something begins to be decided that is bound up in the closest manner with the decision about ourselves, and kind of the introduction of the kind of existentialist model. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Now, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's worth pointing out, we were talking about this this afternoon too, that um, what a lot of Jews in Germany were, people like Buber were experiencing in the aughts and the, and the teens of the 20th century, it's very, it, it, there's a lot of connections between that period of time and the and 1960s America. Right? That the counterculture was, in a sense, a replay in a very different social context to what was happening in Germany at that time, during the Weimar period. Right? For those of you that saw the, the television series Transparent, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big kind of transparent fan. Although now it might end because the lead actor was dropped from the show because of sexual harassment charges. But anyway, um, uh, part of that has this backstory of, 19th, of Berlin in the 1920s and 1930s, which was an incredible bohemian time, right? Free love, opiates, right? It was breaking down barriers. Um, uh, that was kind of replayed in the countercultural in the 1960s. And interestingly enough, just as a side point, I think it's being replayed with the millennials that was inaugurated in the Occupy movement. Because the millennials that were involved in the Occupy movement, when they look back to their predecessors, they look back to the 1960s. Right. That becomes their template. It's a very different world, obviously, but these kinds of countercultural movements are happening at particular periods of time. And I think that what Buber was doing in the aughts and, and teens of the, of the 20th century was taking root again in the 19, 1960s America. And for the same kinds of reasons, a different kind of crisis. But people felt in the 1960s that kind of crisis, that America was unraveling you know, the industrial war machine, capitalism, and so on and so forth. It ended up not bringing about a revolution. In Germany, sadly, it actually did bring about a revolution, but a kind of negative revolution, really the rise of Nazism, right? In America, that didn't happen. Okay, so let's move for a moment, if we can, to, to Heschel. So I, I like this quote from Heschel um, from his book, Quest for God. It used to be man's quest for God, but his daughter, Susanna Heschel, who I see is giving the kind of final lecture here in April, changed the name from man's quest to God to quest for God when she republished it. Um, in any event, I understand what Heschel meant in the 1950s when he was writing this, but it sounds a little bit ominous today. God will return to us, he writes, when we shall be willing to let him in, in into our banks and factories, into our Congress and clubs, into our courts and investigating committees. And he's talking about, I think he's, what the, re the reference here is to the McCarthy, the McCarthy um, uh, hearings. Into our homes and theaters, for God is everywhere or nowhere, the father of all men or no men, concerned with everything or nothing. Only in his presence shall we learn that the glory of man is not his will to power, but in the power of compassion. Now, I, it's, a, it's a scary thing to read today, <laughs> given 
given the impact of evangelical Christianity and given the impact in the way in which religion is being used in our political system, this, remember, this is being written in the Cold War. Right? This is being written when the enemy was communism, when the enemy was godlessness, not the world that we live in. Right? But nonetheless, so we have to kind of put it in context. But in a sense, what he was saying is that American society is being faced with a choice. The choice is, for him, God or no God. And no God, for him, meant communism. So that's kind of where it was coming from, but I think you can see the same kind of spirit of what he's trying to do here, right? Letting God in. You can only let something in if it's actually proximate to enter in, if it's there, if it could be there. And he's talking about it not in the, he's not saying let God, let, let God into the synagogues. No, let God into our profane lives. Let it into the banking system. Let it into the Congress. Let it into consumerism. Let it into entertainment. I think that, I think that Heschel had a perhaps overly optimistic view of what that might bring about. He was not afraid, the way we might be today, of fundamentalism. He was afraid of the opposite. Right? Because you could look at this and you can say, yeah, of course, a kind of, you know, an Islamist can say that. So in a certain way, there's some kind of very dark side to this comment also. But again, in context, I think we can get what he means. One more line or two in the next paragraph, just like four or five lines down, or two lines down. All the pious man's thoughts and plans revolve around this concern. Nothing can detract him away from the way. His preoccupation, this is the pious person, the preoccupation is with the will of God is not limited to a section of his activities, but his great desire to place his whole life at the disposal of God. Again, trying to break down that binary. My Jewish life, that happens when I go to synagogue. When I leave synagogue, I live my secular life. That's how American Judaism has basically functioned. I go to services. I, I, I'm always, I was always struck, I, I was struck by the, wanting to know the real genealogy of the term services as it applies to kind of davening. It's probably, it's probably a translation for the German. But I think, I think there's something, there's something else. I mean, you're probably right that it is a translation of the German, but I think it also functions in another way that, that is, is more, um, uh, less about, about tefillah, about prayer. It's like, this is where my Judaism is serviced. Like, it's my Jewish service station. Like, I go to the gas station, I fill up my car with gas. I go to the synagogue, I fill up my, my tank with Jewishness. Right? I get serviced, in a way. Right? That's not where it comes from, obviously. It probably comes from the German, but in any event. And I think what Heschel was trying to say, the whole push is, no, I want to push against that. No, you're, God is as much out there as, as God is in here. In fact, maybe even more so. Right? So again, breaking down that binary. That is what pious, the pious, that is what Hasidic piety is for these individuals. And this was very, very attractive to a particular kind of generation. And that's why he was drawn to the civil rights movement to the clergy. Right, right. And so what is, what's his famous line when he marched in Selma in 1965 with, with, Abraham, with Martin Luther King? What was his famous, did people know what his famous line was? I, I felt like my feet were praying, right? That's the line that he used, right? In a certain sense, that kind of captures a Hasidic spirit that I was involved in Jewish devotional practice when I was marching for the civil rights of people who were not Jews. 
But you yeah. know, many of the leaders were reform rabbis in those marches. Yes. And he took over. He took over. And, and, over, yeah. The work was done by others. Yes. In, in very much like Kohler and the Right. No, and in fact, I, you know, interesting thing, he was not the first person that was invited to the march. He came to the march because the person that they invited couldn't come because of a previous engagement. That had to be like the ultimate error, right? The person that was invited was Joachim Prince. Oh, yeah. Right? Joachim Prince, who spoke right before Martin Luther King in the 1963 Washington Memorial. He gave the speech right before King and was standing next to King when King gave his I Have a Dream speech, right? Joachim Prince was a reform rabbi from Berlin who was involved in civil rights in the early 1950s. Remember, Heschel doesn't get involved in civil rights until the 1960s. And so the NAACP and CORE, when they were looking to invite a Jewish person to, to march in, in Selma, they invited Prince. And Prince said, oh, I don't, I, have a, I don't know, I have a wedding or something. I can't come. I mean, he didn't know what it was going to be, right? This was just going to be another civil rights march. It turned out to be this iconic thing. So they invited Heschel. And Heschel also was not originally in the front line. He pushed his way to the front. He saw the photo op. Now, I don't, I don't say this, I don't say this, I don't say this in any kind of derogatory way, right? He saw, you know, I, again, he, as a person of wisdom, he saw what was happening. He saw there was something that was very important happening. This was not like any other civil rights march. This was going to be something else. So he made sure that he was in front. And of course, Heschel had the white hair and the beard. And Joachim Prince was a very short guy, a balding guy. He wouldn't have made the, wouldn't have made the same photograph, put it that way. But in any event, that's, a, that's, a, that's another story. Um, but the, fact, but, but the statement of I felt my feet were praying, I think, is a very, uh, very indicative of, of the way he felt. OK, so now we can move more solidly into the counterculture, into Arthur Green, who was a student of Amber of Joshua Heschel. Now, Green, in a certain way, sees Hasidism. And uh, as opposed to Heschel and Buber, what Green and Shakta Shalomi are trying to do is not only translate Hasidic spirituality, but actually recreate a neo-Hasidic Judaism. So moving from the intellectual to the actual practical, what would neo-Hasidic halakha look like? What would neo-Hasidic prayer look like? Ritual look like? What would neo-Hasidic liturgy look like? Right? Heschel wrote a book about prayer. But he didn't really write a book about changing the liturgy. Right? And I think what Green and Shakta Shalomi do is they take it into the more practical realm. And that's kind of where we are today in terms of things like Jewish renewal and so on and so forth. So Green writes, our contention is that Hasidism came to the threshold of a major breakthrough in religious consciousness, but one that at the same time threatened to destroy all that its Western legacy thought was required for the preservation of the religio-social order. At the edge of this abyss, it retreated into safer expressions of traditional Jewish piety. So he's making an interesting claim that early Hasidism in the late 18th century was really, and I think he's correct here historically too, as others have said. I mean, that's no great, you know, chidush. That it was not clear in the early generations of Hasidism that it wasn't going to become another form of Jewish, real Jewish heresy. We know the famous letter that the, that the Vilna Gon signed basically claiming that Hasidism was a heretical cult, a heretical sect, right. 1774. But Hasidism moved to that margin and then retreated back into, ortho, into what we would call orthodoxy. 
It didn't take the final step. Now, I think in a way Green is saying this because I think what he's suggesting is that neo-Hasidism is taking that step that Hasidism never took 200 years before. Right. It's taking that step beyond. Now, it's living in a different society. It's living in a different culture. Right? American Jewry was not Eastern European Jewry. Right? Jonathan Sarna likes to say, when you talk about American Jewry, there's only two kinds. There's reform and there's everything else. That's the, if you look at the American religious experience, that's the way it was. Judaism in America was really built on Reform Judaism. Those were the early immigrants. Now, of course, there were immigrants from, from Portugal that came earlier that were, that were Orthodox, like the Turo Synagogue and so on and so forth, and you know, Synagogue in Savannah. But the large, first large immigration of Jews to America were German Jews, many of whom were Reform. And then the Orthodox came later. So the template was already set for American Jewry to be somewhat more open and more liberal and more progressive. Whereas in Eastern Europe, that was obviously wasn't the case. And even Germany, where Reform Judaism began to grow, orthodoxy was still really, in a certain sense, the centerpiece. So I think that Green is making this comment that, yes, in some way, when we talk about Hasidism today, neo-Hasidism, it is for Green a form of Jewish heresy. It's taking that step that Hasidism never took. Ritual commandments, he writes, are there to be fulfilled, but they are not seen as means rather than as ends. But they, I'm sorry, but they are seen as means rather than as ends. Vessels to contain the divine light that floods the soul or as concrete embodiments of the heart's inner quest, right? My Hebrew school teachers never told me that, right? When they taught me about mitzvot, they didn't tell me that, right? So I think, again, this becomes the way in which Hasidism serves a community that is looking for meaning that is looking for some kind of internal driving sense of, 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 of experience. And that the mitzvot can do that. Just like tai chi can do that, just like yoga can do that, just like meditation can do that, right? That it's a form of Jewish practical meditation. That's the message that's being, you know, I'm, not, I'm not gonna you know, weigh in on whether that's you know, suc successful or not, or good or bad, and it's not a question whether it's right or wrong. It works or it doesn't work. Either it serves that function or it doesn't. And on the next page, on page three, just on this next uh, this couple of lines in this next one, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. Historical Hasidism underwent two great struggles, first against the dominant rabbinic culture, then against the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, the Reform, just for lack of a better term. You might say that our situation, meaning our situation in the 1980s or 1990s when he wrote this neo-Hasidic credo, you might say that our situation more reflects the latter. The secularization of consciousness surely began with the Enlightenment, and we continue to live in its midst. Yes, we need to go about ongoing struggle in a ma manner completely different from the 19th century. Our religious consciousness has to awaken from the days of that loss, the battle against biblical criticism and Darwinism, and seek old new paths of expression. Right? So just as for Buber, Hasidism was the answer to the crisis of Western civilization. For Green, Hasidism is the answer, for, the answer to the kind of secularization of consciousness. Call it, let's say, for lack of a better term, scientism. Right? He calls it Darwinism. That still kind of dominates American culture. Now, that's not true only of Jews. That was what the counterculture was about. 
right? This is just classic counterculture language, right? He's not making this up, and it's certainly not particularly to the Jewish community. Okay, one more thing. If we go to Zalman Shakti Shalomi, which is a whole other thing, because I think of all of the four people, he is the one that actually pushes the furthest into seeing our lives as, as, as Jews in a completely new paradigm. And as I was saying, as I was saying to Rabbi Shmueli before, I think one of the one of the, the most kind of potent messages of Shakti Shalomi is that Judaism has to go global. Judaism has to become a world religion. It's no longer a religion by Jews for Jews. It's a religion by Jews for Jews and as a gift of the Jews to the world. And this becomes, in a way, his kind of dissonant response to the Holocaust. Because most Jews respond to the Holocaust in a manner that, whether it's Zionism or whether it's you know, a return to kind of community, as after the Holocaust, we have to kind of circle the wagons, we have to protect ourselves, we have to make sure that we're able to reproduce ourselves and reproduce our ideas. Right? We have to kind of close, the world, close off from the world. Right? We have to you know, build a wall, to use kind of contemporary uh, language. And he's saying just the opposite. For him, the message of Holocaust is that we have to become more open to the world. That actually, we have to become this part of the spiritual humanist revolution. Classical New Age language, Aquarian age, right? And, his, and his, he has a book called Fragments of a Future Scroll that he wrote in the 1970s, that the, 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 uh, the subtitle of which is Judaism for the Aquarian Age. And that moves even further away from this model. And he claims that Hasidism offers the, the possibility to do that, which is kind of ironic, because when we think of Hasidism in terms of its you know, existence as a social form, we think, oh, wait, these are enclave communities. These are people that are separating themselves. They live in New Square, or they live in Muncie, or they live in Williamsburg, right? And they separate themselves. He says, yeah, 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 but really Hasidism is actually just the opposite. Right? It offers the pen template for just the opposite. So there were three things, there were three things that Shakti Shalomi said changed his notion of the paradigm that we live in. Three things that were revolutionary moments in time of equal stature that made this era something that is new, categorically different. Number one was Auschwitz. So the Holocaust. Number two was Hiroshima, which he claims was as powerful or should be as powerful an event as the Holocaust. Interestingly, it happened within you know, a couple of years of each other. And the third thing was the photograph of the Earth from the moon. The photo, and we all know that, we know that we all know that iconic photograph, right? The photograph of the Earth from the moon for him changed everything. To be able to see ourselves as a planet from outside ourselves, to be able to see this, this you know, as he described, this, this ball floating in the air, right, made him believe that the Earth was actually not only a place that housed life, but that the Earth itself was an organism. Right? And he adopts this from this notion in the New Age called Gaia consciousness, right? The notion of Mother Earth, 
the notion that the Earth is alive. And that we reside in this living planet with other living things. And we have a responsibility, as much as we have a responsibility for ourselves, we have a responsibility for the planet. And that that becomes, just like Heschel marching in Selma was, was, was like davening, for Shakta Shalomi, ecology is like davening. It is the avoda, it is the services, right? We were, we're servicing the world and the planet. And we can only do that if we're part of the larger human race. And that if we close ourselves off from that as a result of the trauma of the Holocaust, we're missing an incredible opportunity to be part of this new age. Um, and he says this in this last power, in the second paragraph. With the emergence of a global consciousness in the 20th century, perhaps best articulated by the first images of our planet as seen from outer space, the paradigm of every known religion began to shift irrevocably. Irrevocably. Before the dawning of this global consciousness, every religious tradition followed a more or less independent trajectory or could at least maintain the illusion of doing so. But once the shape and sharing of the planet was known, all trajectories began to align kind of sounds like Einstein in relativity, causing upheaval every religious tradition and spiritual lineage. Thus, a global consciousness is both the primary catalyst for and the defining characteristic of the fourth turning of Hasidism. So he sees that Hasidism has the potential to be the spiritual template for Jews actually seeing themselves as part of a larger global community that doesn't limit themselves or their survival, but rather sees themselves as participants in this. And he claims that this is happening not only in Judaism. He claims this is happening. This is this is a, you know there there is a spiritual paradigm shift worldwide. Now thinking about you know fundamentalist Islam and what's going on in the world, all those things. I don't necessarily think they disprove it, right? Because these things happen slowly. But for him, this was the change, and, Hasidism, and, and this became the way in which Hasidism could, could serve another kind of crisis. Not the Western crisis of Buber, not the American crisis of Green, but the global crisis of the 21st century. And obviously, environmentalism and ecology is something that Chav has done incredible work on for many years, right, is part of that. But it's a big part of it. So for example, I was talking to Rabbi Shmuel um, uh, before lunch. He has an essay, a chapter, in a book called uh, Jewish with Feeling, which is a kind of unfortunate title. I don't really like the title of the book. But there's a fabulous chapter in that book called Eco Kashrut. Right? And Eco Kashrut is an attempt to rethink dietary laws of Kashrut as not simply about what I can put in my mouth, but these are spiritual laws of consumption. And consumption cannot be seen outside of production. So that while we think, and here is where it becomes kind of dissonant, right? He would say, why we think, what is the kind of perfect, what is the perfect kind of uh, um, uh, dishware for, for a kosher home? Because you know, you have two, you have two, you have milk and meat. It's a better idea. Just use paper and plastic. It's perfect, right? You just throw it away afterwards. It doesn't make a difference. You don't got to mix it up. You don't have to have two washing machines, dishwashers, or two sponges, or two sinks, right? But he's saying, so from a, from a purely old model kashrut perspective, like, 
Paper and plastic, silverware, paper and plastic is perfect. But from an, from an eco-cashward perspective, you're destroying the world. You're just creating more landfill, right? So he wants to say that it should be halakhically forbidden to use styrofoam. So that in a sense, this kind of liberal halakha is not more lenient, but more strict in many ways. Or I'm not going to buy meat from a slaughterhouse that hires illegal immigrants and pays them nothing. Right? I want to know how that food is manufactured. I don't only want to know how the food, if it's killed ritually. I want to know the people that are doing that. I want to know the migrant workers that are picking the food I'm eating. Right? Now, it can, it'll drive you crazy right, on some level when you do that. But he's saying that is the new paradigm. That we have to think about things holistically, that everything is connected, how things are produced, how people are employed, how people are treated. How the animals are treated. How the animals are treated, exactly. Now, today, um, there are movements in the Jewish world that have nothing to do with Shalma Shakhtar Lomi, that have nothing to do with Hasidism, that are trying to do that. Heksher Tzedek in the conservative movement, we were talking earlier how that kind of failed. Within the Orthodox movement, I mean, the rabbi has done incredible stuff in trying to create this consciousness. But you see the pushback. The pushback is fierce against it, right? Whereas, whereas, whereas one rabbi responded uh, to a panel that, that Shmuley was on and saying, Kashrut has nothing to do with ethics. Right? Now, I don't think that's, you, that may sound kind of dissonant, right? But I think for a lot of, a lot of people, that actually is practically the way that, I don't care, don't, don't bother me. Don't, uh, I don't want to hear about migrant workers. I don't want to hear about who's getting paid. I don't want to hear about how the, I, I, it, I won't be able to eat anything. So, but what Shakti Shalom says, this is the opportunity, this is the time, right? Because, because of the picture of that planet floating in the air. Right, floating in space, that's all we are. We're basically just living on this organism floating in space. And the future of that organism is going to depend upon the way we treat each other and also the way we treat the place where we live. Anyway, I'll end here. Thank you very much. So, questions, yeah. Okay. So you brought us up to you know, the renewal movement and the boomer generation. Talk about post-American Judaism and the millennials and where they're taking contemporary spirituality from here. Right. That's a very good question. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, all, I, didn't get to, I didn't get to that part. I think it's in progress. I think that millennials are interested, uh, millennials as a generation, but some of them, especially progressive millennials, are interested, have become re-politicized, right? They're interested in uh, contributing as Jews to other kinds of issues that are more politically charged, politically motivated, and that would have to do with labor laws and health care and, and, and um, migrant workers and people of color and black, excuse me, and Black Lives Matter. And I think that there, the, what I see emerging, and I don't think it's really emerged yet, is a kind of way in which you have the beginnings of a devotional social justice movement. Now, Heschel was doing that when he was marching in Selma, to some degree, right? But the difference between what Heschel was doing in Selma and what I think some of these millennials are doing today, Heschel was basically marching in solidarity with another community. 
to fight for their equal rights. I think what people, to, what young people today are doing are, 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 what they are doing is saying, we as a community want to be involved integrally in the actual production of these kinds of social movements. We don't want to just be in solidarity with you. We want to be part of you. We want to be part of that process. So I think, the, I think that's slowly happening. I think that although the Jewish renewal movement is a fairly small movement, and probably will remain so, I think just as Mordechai Kaplan's Reconstructionist movement remains small, largely because most Jews today in America are Reconstructionists by default, even though they never heard of Mordechai Kaplan. In other words, I think his popularity, what he envisioned came to be such that it became kind of integrated into the larger society. I think that's happening with Shakta Shalomi and Renewal too. I think that the movement is small, but the ethos is pouring out into communities from the Orthodox world to, uh, to the secular world. So I think, I think the, it, it, you know, maybe five or 10 years, I'll come back and talk about you know, where that's going. But I think, that, I think, I think we, we were talking earlier, earlier today that you know, when we talk about the Occupy movement, we say, oh yeah, I remember that. It was kind of like, you know, like bell bottoms and beads, right? And like, you know, it happened and it's done. I think the Occupy movement really actually has grown some deep roots and a lot of things that we're seeing now from Bernie Sanders to Black Lives Matter was really the, the beginning of the fruits of what the Occupy movement stirred up in, the, in that millennial society. So we'll see how that works out. Please. Uh, given the um, push towards the, sort of the globalization of spirituality, talk about what the, what, where you see the future of the answer to the question, uh, how do you define a Jew, who is a Jew? Well, that's the big question, um, the moving question, I should say. And, and I think you know, in American post-Judaism, I did deal with that. I think we're, we're moving beyond a purely kind of ethnic community. Most Jewish communities in America, most synagogues in America, are not made up solely of Jews. Right? I think that one of the challenges of the American Jewish community, as I see it, is how to make room for the non-Jew as part of the Jewish community. Not, yes, of course, you're welcome to come to synagogue, and you know, we'll come over and say good Shabbos to you after, you know, during Kiddush, but is there a way to liturgically and ritually include the non-Jew as part of the Jewish community? So the question of who is a Jew is one question. Another question is, who is a member of the Jewish community? Right? Which I think is, is just, a, as, as just a relevant question. Now, I think one of the things that are, uh, is happening, one of the things that are happening is that, that the, no, this is something that I was speaking about with Stephen Cohen at the Park Avenue Synagogue in New York a few weeks ago on the question of intermarriage and conversion. Right? The solution to intermarriage in America is not the conversion of the non-Jewish spouse. Right? I think that that's a mistake. I think that for all kinds of reasons, largely the result of multiculturalism, people want to retain their own heritage, their own background. They don't, they don't necessarily you know, want to feel like I have to become something else to be, a part, to be a partner to this person or to be a part of the community. That 
who is a Jew will, is, is increasingly becoming voluntary. So you have increasing numbers, for example, of people that are self-converting. We were talking about this earlier. They're converting to Judaism and they identify as being Jews, but they never went to a rabbi, they never went to a beit din. They, they, they taught themselves, they went to classes, they got together with a couple of friends, they went to the ocean, they went to the mikvah, and they're Jews. Now, who's to say they're not? Right? And a generation or two down the road, who's to say they're not? Right. Excuse me? Yes, the rabbinic courts say they're not, but the rabbinic courts, but the rabbinic courts, what authority do the rabbinic courts have to people who don't give those rabbinic courts authority? So yes, if the person wants to move to Israel and they want to get move under the law of return, the rabbinut will check to see what their conversion is like. And if they don't like this, I'm sorry, you're not a Jew. But that's but that's because the rabbinic the rabbinic court in in, in Israel is functioning as an arm of the state. Right? But in America, there isn't that. We have a separation of church and state, right? So that rabbinic courts only have the authority of people that submit themselves to the authority of the rabbinic courts. So somebody might say, so this self-converted Jew might say, you, you know, if they say, well, you know, as you say, let's say the, the rabbinic courts don't consider you a Jew, and they might say, I don't care. What, what, what difference does it make to me? Right? And I, I think that's, that's the reality of the way in which Judaism has to function in a separation of church and state society where we don't have any policing of these kinds of things. Uh, the perception I, I always had is that when Hasidism started, it was kind of an anti-intellectual movement. Right. So uh, modern American Jews, certainly conservative Judaism, held itself out to be more of a cons uh, intellectual type discussions. Uh, from, I know Rabbi Dorf, how he always yeah. deals with all the issues, the halakhic issues, and, and uh, Hasidism was different. So Hasidism today, and I want to ask you, my question is going to be is how is neo-Hasidism different? My, my, with the background, we have 50 programs a year for Validate Madrash. I don't think I've ever seen anyone from Hasidic movement join our program. Right. For, we have Orthodox, we have Reform, we have non-Jews, we have a lot of people, but nobody from, from that. Second, secondly, right. where are these people socially? You talk about Heschel. Heschel is certainly not a Hasidic Jew because they would not have asked a secret rabbi to march with them. And uh, I, I don't think they joined Rod Shmuley when he protests uh, in downtown Phoenix. And he has plenty right. of protest about. But right. I don't think they're there. Right. So what is neo-Hasidism other than uh, just uh, let's celebrate, let's light Shabbat candles, let's uh, have, get a real big menorah? I mean, why, why? You've told us that we should be interested in it. And I'm not sure that I am. Mm. So convince, okay. Convince well, first of all, I want to. I, I don't know if I can convince you. Not in 30 seconds. Okay. But I, I want to. I, I think it's important to make a t distinction between um, um, anti-intellectual and non-rational. I mean, if you would, if we would, if we would sit together and open a Hasidic text and learn it together, you would not find it to be anti-intellectual. I mean, these people were highly intellectual. By non-rational, I think it's a better way of putting it in that they, they, they saw the world in a different way than a rationalist would. They understood the world and their place in it differently. So I, I just think that that distinction, because you know, it's often used in terms of you know, anti-intellectual, it's really about rational versus non-rational uh, understandings of the world. 
Uh, and for us, by the way, I mean, we're not Maimonidean rationalists, right? We're historical rationalists, right? We, 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 that we're historical people. That's what the modern Jewish project is, right? That's what Graz and Guy, they, were, they, they, they understood history as a way of understanding tradition, not these kind of philosophical Aristotelian categories the way Maimonides is. So that's, that's the other thing. In terms of, in terms of your, your question about the Hasidic movement, I think, that, I think there is a important separation between, call it neo-Hasidism, and I think you're right to call it neo-Hasidism, and kind of, we'll call it classical Hasidism. Classical Hasidism is really more a social construct than it is a devotional construct. In other words, they're maintaining a tradition, the tradition of their parents and their grandparents, and they wear the same clothes, and they eat the same food, and they daven with the same siddur, and they, they teach their children, they speak the same language, right? There's a way in which there's a conservatism in, conservatism in the classical sense, right? They're trying to preserve the past, right? As a way simply of preserving the past, simply because that's their heritage. I don't think that the spiritual devotional practice is as important, and I, I may be wrong here, for a lot of people of, of the kind of classical Hasidim as it is to maintain the past, even if that maintaining the past means, means closing themselves off. Neo-Hasidism is basically saying that, it's again, it's a letter and spirit distinction. I don't really care about the clothes and the food and the language and the practices. I care about the spiritual work in the texts themselves and the way that I can translate them into a modern idiom. That's what Bubu is interested. That's what Heschel was interested. Now, why is that important? It's an interesting question. I tried to argue that there were these kind of movements within our society that brought us to this place. Now, should it be important? That's really a question of inclination, right? I mean, if it turns you on, it turns you on. If it doesn't turn you on, it doesn't turn you on. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I, and, and I say that, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean that jokingly. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, nothing is for everybody. People are going to have different ways of understanding themselves as human beings, as citizens of a country, as Jews, as, as, as participating in a kind of de devotional practice. I think that what the question that I was asking was, why, and, and this is a question that you can ask about the Pharisees and Zionism too. Why has it won out? What, what happened? What were the conditions that brought about the success of this and the demise of this? Why has Zionism won and the Bund collapsed? Right? I mean, the Bund was much more popular than Zionism in Russia in the early part of the 20th century. And yet, how many Bundists are there in this room? How many Bundists are there in America anymore? It lost, right? I think that there are historical reasons as to why, why it won out. But, but even though Zionism might have won out in our world for all kinds of historical reasons and social reasons and cultural reasons, there are still people that are not Zionists. Right? There are still people for whom Zionism really just doesn't speak to them. And that's always going to be the case. So I, don't, I didn't want to make a case to say that this is, this is the future. What I, the case I was making is here is a vision of the future that somehow has grown roots in our society, in our generation, in our will it continue to grow roots to generations around the world? Who knows? Right.
Um, do you think that people, people, Jews who have done, you know, Jews who are always searching, searching for, and, and are affiliated with one movement or tried practicing another movement, are turning to neo-Hasidism as because they regard it as the more, this is the most authentic, everybody's always looking for authenticity. Right. And so what they're looking for the most authentic, this is the authentic Judaism. That's a good question. To some degree, I think that there is some of that. There's, and that would be really the romanticism. That would be the new Jewish catalog, you know, showing, giving you addresses of Hasidic rebbies, right? There is a kind of romanticism, even a kind of Jewish Orientalism, I would say, that is very much a part of the counterculture. I mean, the, count, the American counterculture was very much of a romantic movement, right, in a lot of ways, right? Rediscovering Native American ritual, right? I mean, it was part, it was part of the kind of, part of the kind of cultural renaissance. I, I, I do think, however, that, that that people like Green and Shakta Shalomi, who are the latest two iterations of this, would not necessarily make the argument for authenticity. Shakta Shalomi certainly wouldn't make the argument for authenticity. I mean, he would say no. And, and I think Green, in that comment that I, that I read you, no, we've stepped over the line. Right? Don't come to us because you want to be authentic. Come to us because you want to understand a future for Shalomi's position, from Shakta Shalomi's position of a kind of new paradigm, or from, 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 from uh, Green's position to, as an answer to kind of, to kind of the secularization of Jewish consciousness. Come to us for that. Don't come to us because you want to be authentic. If you want to go to be authentic, go to Chabad. Now, and, and, and I'm serious, I don't mean that jokingly, right? Now, and now, do I think Chabad is authentic? No, I don't necessarily think it's authentic, but it, it, at least it makes the claim of authenticity. Right. Whether it's true or not is something else. I don't particularly think it's true. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in authenticity at all, anywhere. I think that is just, just a manufactured category that makes us feel somehow connected to the past. But if you're interested in nostalgia, put it that way, okay. right? that, that's, that is the generating, the generating, kind of, you know, the generating um, force of Chabad's success is nostalgia. It's not authenticity. But nostalgia is a problematic category in terms of how I want to basically spend my time on this earth. Yeah. Right. Anyway, are we out of time? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.